we're only a year or two away from, if you follow that pattern, the next major thing coming out and going forward. And it's just interesting to speculate about what that could be, whether it's at the language level, it does seem like it's probably something more not JavaScript related, maybe like written in another language, but using WebAssembly to run in JavaScript. And just, you know, what paradigms are coming out in the next year or two that are going to reshape the landscape? I feel like you know something, Nick. Do you know something that we don't know? Let me introduce my new project. <laughs> What's coming up? <laughs> Let me introduce my new project. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Sentry. Build better software faster. Diagnose, fix, and optimize the performance of your code. More than a million developers in 68,000 organizations already use Sentry, and that includes us. Here's the easiest way to try Sentry. Head to sentry.io slash demo slash sandbox. That is a fully functional version of Sentry that you can poke at. And best of all, our listeners get the team plan for free for three months. Head to sentry.io and use the code PARTYTIME when you sign up. Again, sentry.io and use the code PARTYTIME. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. If you love our shows, check out Changelog++, drop the ads, get in on bonus content, and directly support our work. And it works right in your favorite podcast app. Whether you listen on Apple, Spotify, Overcast, it's all good. Learn more at changelog.com slash plus plus. Thanks to our friends at Fastly for beaming JS Party all around the world to wherever you listen. Check them out at fastly.com. Okay, take it away, K-Ball. It's party time, y'all. Hello, hello, JS Party animals. It's me, your internet friend. It's Jared, and I am joined today by Nick Nisi. What's up, Nick? Hoi hoi, how's it going? It's going quite well. How are you doing? I am very excited to talk about JavaScript today. Are you ever not excited? <laughs> That's the real question. I should have replaced JavaScript with TypeScript, and then we'll continue. But yes. I think we've got to be more excited. <laughs> well, contain yourself. Contain yourself. We have a special guest, a return guest. It's Swix. What's up, man? Hey, thanks for having me back. And can I just say TypeScript is just more JavaScript on top of JavaScript, so you're good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pile the JavaScript on top of my JavaScript, please, <laughs> is what Nick says. I've never said such a thing, but to each their own. Not to foreshadow or anything, but I can't wait to talk about your your talk and the move away from TypeScript. Ooh. It's a little bit clickbaity, but we can talk about that. <laughs> That's yeah. why Nick said it right up top. Because yep. now we've clickbaited everybody into listening to more of the show. So we had you on a little while back. You were talking about Temporal. We've also had you on the changelog recently. So happy to have you on all of our shows. You're always watching the industry. Of course, you're participating in the industry and analyzing and looking forward. And I think you called it future casting. I don't know. Or now casting. You got a term for it. And now casting. What you see now and where we're headed. You have this really cool talk at Reactathon about the third age of JavaScript, which is something you've been talking about for a while. It's kind of an update and a review. You want to lay out that blog post from 2020, what it's about, and then we'll we'll do the catch-up after that. Sure, and also Reactathon was a fantastic experience, highly recommend. But we'll cover the third issue of JavaScript first. So the idea is that I'll come with a little bit of the backstory, and then we'll get into the thesis. So the backstory is, it was sort of mid-pandemic. A lot of new projects were getting announced. It was coming to the forefront. You could feel a shift in the air around the energy of open source developers 
in JavaScript. And I was, was wondering, like, why is that? Why does this period feel different from maybe two years ago? And back then it was 2020, so two years ago would be 2018. It feels different. It feels like people are innovating on a different layer mm-hmm. of the stack than just like yet another React state management library, you know, for example. And <laughs> there's plenty of those and they're great. But still, it seems like there's more foundational shifts going on. And I was wondering why. And I started looking back into like historical aspects of JavaScript and I started bucketing the evolution into different ages. And the hypothesis was there's a changing of the guard. And I've looked into people like TJ Holloway-Chuck and even Guillermo himself. And there's a bunch of people who are early on in JavaScript that are kind of less prominent today. Like Jeremy Ashkenaz. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Like there's a bunch of those people who worked on very core period pieces of stuff that we all use today or that at least influences stuff that we all use today. And then they work on it for 10 years and then they disappear and <laughs> and new people come on the scene. Mm-hmm. And I feel like essentially there's a changing of the guard. And so what I did was I went through the history of JavaScript and I looked into how could I spin that narrative to backfit in a as much as intellectually honest way as possible the evolution of the language. And so what I came up with was that the first 10 years was the first decade of JavaScript was the formation of the language, literally starting from the standardization of ECMAScript all the way to 2009, 2008 maybe. So this was the period from 1997 to 2008. And that was the period of standardization all the way to ES5. And it was a really magical period, uh, primarily focused at the language layer. And then 2009 happens, uh, and that was a very pivotal year for JavaScript because in the same year, Node, NPM, Chrome, I'm not not sure what else, all came out at once. And those are just like new runtime for JavaScript, uh, new standardized runtime, new package manager, you know, like just everything that we use today was formed in that. I called it sort of Year of Miracles, Annus Mirabilis. And then that spawned like the the second age of JavaScript, which was the, the next 10 years of building frameworks and libraries and abstractions that push forward the language, including, by the way, compiled to JS languages like CoffeeScript and TypeScript. You know, it seems clear that TypeScript has won. So essentially, that brings us all the way up to, from 2010 all the way up to 2020. And 2020 was the first year of the third age where something different was in the air. Like Deno was being announced, uh, Vite was being announced. Like there's just like a new set of innovation that seems qualitatively different. Just to cut the long story short, my hypothesis was that it's a collapsing of layers and it's a clearing away of old assumptions. And one of the old assumptions is that, for example, one of them is we don't have a standard package, a standard module system in JavaScript. And now we do. We have ES modules. And, and now that's just a, a standard that's proliferating everywhere. And more web standards are becoming more and more of a standardized API, even on the back end. Another one would be that you have to write JavaScript tooling in JavaScript, right, for people to understand the tools that they use and contribute back. Turns out they, most of them don't. So <laughs> especially the, the stuff that you run hundreds and hundreds of times more than others, uh, the hot path code, maybe you want to optimize that in a compiled language like Go or Rust. You saw those platforms start arising with uh, ESBuild and SWC. The part about the collapsing layers is really just about understanding our tools, right? So my favorite way to tell the story is to tell the story of Microsoft Word, the word processor. When the original word processors came out, you had to buy add-ons for horizontal layout, for page count, for, <laughs> really? for word count as well. Each individual little thing, because they weren't viewed as part of the core job, right, of a word processor. But as we grew in our usage, what was table stakes for a word processor started to grow. And so you start to see the platform absorb all those functionality as 
part of its core. And now you would not imagine a standard word processor not shipping with one of those features. So what that means over time is basically when, when you start building out an ecosystem, you start out with the Unix philosophy of everything should just do one thing and then you know you, uh, utilize a plugin ecosystem to add functionality to have a thin core and all that. But after a while, if you just have a standard set of all the things that everyone just has come to expect, then a new tool will come out that just consolidates all those layers and makes the experience that much better, faster, just something that you don't even worry about. And that describes uh, Deno and Rome. So that's what's happening in my mind with the third issue JavaScript. And so that was the original thesis in 2020. So the, the talk that I did, it's been three years, you know, 2020, 21, 22. It's been three years since. The talk that I did basically covered what I missed in the original blog post. But I'll stop there just to get any reactions. I really like the, the kind of breakup of that, like 10 years of, of different cycles. And there's a lot of patterns that you can read into each of those cycles that kind of repeat in the subsequent year. I guess we only have two really to, to go on since we're in the third one now. But like, you know, from 1999 to 2009, about halfway through that, you had major things come out like jQuery, which is still very prominent today, despite us trying to ignore it. Not on purpose, just, you know, we don't realize how prominent it still is. Right. But also like there was a fundamental shift in the language itself that just never came to be. And that was ES4. And there was a lot of stuff that they were trying to cram into that. And it just never came out. But then ES5 came out in 2009 and added a lot of really cool stuff. But then like kind of halfway through that, the 2012, 2013 era, you get TypeScript coming out, React coming out. And this more like looking at um, building applications as like or componentizing those applications with different things like Angular, React, all of those. And then in 2015, obviously, we had ES2015 and major shifts to the language. A lot of the ES4 stuff coming back to to actually be more mature and, and actually make it into the language. And then the yearly cadence of that. But now in 2020 and beyond, like we're only a year or two away from, if you follow that pattern, the next major thing coming out and going forward. And it's just interesting to speculate about what that could be, whether it's at the language level, it does seem like it's probably something more not JavaScript related, maybe like written in another language, but using WebAssembly to run on, in JavaScript. And just, you know, what paradigms, if you're thinking like in terms of like componentizing things, what paradigms are coming out in the next year or two that are going to reshape the landscape? I feel like you know something, Nick. Do you know something that we don't know? Let me introduce my new project. <laughs> no. What's coming up? <laughs> Let me introduce my new project. <laughs> so yeah, in the original blog post, I actually color coded the significant advancements or launches of the JavaScript libraries or tools. And so the, the standardization, the ES1, 4, 5, and 6, I placed in red. You could see like just visually the red stuff was earlier in the, to the left of the timeline. And then the blue stuff, which is sort of user land modifications of the language, which includes jQuery, MooTools, CoffeeScript, including React and Vue and, and so on, and TypeScript as well. I put them in blue, and those were a little bit more into the second age. The second age also had uh, build tools, so I put those in orange. And those had, that had Grunt, Gulp, Webpack, Babel, Rollup, Parcel, all happened in the second age. Mm -hmm. And then finally, green was runtime. So like, where can JavaScript run? And so the prominent ones I, I marked out was Chrome, Node.js, Electron, React Native, Hermes, and Deno. Probably I should have added Cloudflare Worker somewhere in there, but it wasn't that big at the time. Yeah, so just from there, you can see distinct patterns that are emerging like in, in terms of like what innovations it's kind of there's a theme around the types of innovations that are happening throughout each age yeah totally and so like i like to not just 
be playing number patterns. Like it's not enough for me to say, okay, like this seems to have a cycle or this seems to have patterns. Like I want to have some reason behind why they they're happening, like as a hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And that's why I talked about the changing of the guard. Like I think it's just people coming on the scene, taking what exists as a given, and then saying, all right, what can I build with this? And then you know they want to make a name for themselves, and then they go ahead and. And do what they can do. So that's what you're seeing here. You're seeing the movement of people trying to make their careers. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting about JavaScript, if we talk about in-browser JavaScript, is it does not live in a vacuum as much as server-side does, right? In terms of advancements, in terms of technologies, in terms of what stuff gets collapsed and what stuff doesn't. I mean, there's the HTML spec, there's the CSS working group, and they're kind of working along in tandem or sometimes not in tandem with people who are pushing JavaScript as a language and as tooling. Curious how those aspects, CSS and HTML, fit into JavaScript's growth and maturity from your perspective. It's just something I've decided not to cover. I don't know as much about it. <laughs> CSS has its own complicated evolution. I think the, the decision of the CSS working group to split into separate modules for independent advancement was positive for the maintainers of the CSS, the participants of the CSS working group. But on the marketing side, no one knows what they can use. Right. <laughs> so about a couple of years ago, there actually was a movement for a CSS4 as a pure marketing exercise of saying, everyone, like, this is the set of features that we've collectively agreed that is now kosher to use and, like, you should use them because they're just so much better than their predecessors. It's not clear. Like, you have to kind of pick it up through trade knowledge or whatever. Right, in practice, yeah. Right. So actually having version numbers is, is a really good forcing function for everyone saying like, all right, am I on CSS4? Let's, let's look at what's in CSS4 and gathers people around that. Right now, CSS working group, like we have to go into like, all right, are we on the layout spec, like the Flexbox spec like version two and what's in version two versus version three? It's just a much more complicated story that nobody has time to get into. Well, I think even JavaScript story there isn't great. I mean, as a person who's in the industry, I mean, ES4, ES5, ES6, and then exactly what happened for everything. I just go to caniuse.com just to find out if I can any given feature. Now, there's certain things I know exist inside the language now, but there's lots of stuff where I'm like, when did this get introduced and which browser is supported? I don't have a clue. So even the version numbers with ECMAScript has been, at least for this guy, not super useful. At least they started okay. And then, I don't know, did they just abandon <laughs> it? What's going on these days with, yes, 20, is there 2018, 2022? Yeah. yeah, it's once a year. Yeah. I just use TypeScript as my measuring stick of what I can use. That's like the blessed version of JavaScript. Whatever version I happen to be able to support <laughs> with that, whatever features they support, I can support. I see. So you just let Microsoft bless your versions for you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if it works, it works. Exactly. But that is true about CSS. Like I see all the time, I think I, I follow a Twitter account called like random MDN. Mm-hmm. It just gives you like random MDN pages to, to peruse and look at. And some of them are like CSS things. And I, I'm just like, Oh, that's cool. But I have no concept of when or how I could use that right. today. As we record this, I still have 34 more days of IE 11 support. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of things that I can't use. Not that anybody's counting. <laughs> it's dying. So the fun fact is that originally I tried to get a hard number on like a hard date on when IE officially dies and apparently people can pay for extended support so no. it really depends on what your def- your definition of don't tell anybody oh yeah exactly we're not we're not gonna promote that <laughs> i guess it depends but like yeah javascript is every is updated every year i think it's a reasonably easy thing to follow there's actually people on the tc39 that say that 
updating once a year actually isn't like the best way to do this to evolve a language because right now it's just whoever can champion their proposal all the way to stage three or four and that's fine on an individual proposal basis but when you think about designing a language as a cohesive whole you need to take groups of features together Mm -hmm. and that's something that maybe you sacrifice in favor of the current model This episode is brought to you by Vercel, the platform that enables front-end teams to do their best work. Vercel combines the best developer experience with an obsessive focus on end-user performance. And I'm here with founder and CEO of Vercel, Guillermo Rauch. So Guillermo, I had you on Founders Talk recently talking about making the web faster and how Vercel is built on three pillars, develop, preview, ship. But talk about why it's so important to make the web faster. I think, first of all, the web is the most open and exciting platform to build on. And listeners are going to be enthusiastic about JavaScript, which is one of our areas of focus. We think that by creating amazing tools and open sourcing them, developers will go on to create amazing experiences for the end users. And I think that's where the concept of making the web faster to build and faster to end users. That's the, the crucial mission of Vercel. Uh, this is what's led to us investing all across the board to build the is end-to-end platform. Started with the framework that you develop with, the workflow of pushing up a change and seeing it instantly and being able to share that change with your collaborators. All the way to shipping to the edge network of Vercel that makes your site or application globally fast, globally available. So it's this very comprehensive mission of making the web end-to-end faster and more open. I love it. Globally fast, globally available on a more open web. Learn more at Vercel.com. Again, Vercel.com. by your framing we are now three years in to the third age of javascript and you miss some things this is what you shared at reactathon we'll put your talk in the notes as well as well as your updated blog post so one thing i like about you sean is you always are updating and maintaining your writings whereas most of us just like set it and forget it and never return but you're constantly evolving (laughs) those things and keeping the web fresh at least your little corner of the web so that's cool so we'll link those things up but tell us about you're now reflecting back to 2020 and what you wrote then, what you've missed, what you got. Yeah, so first of all, what you described there, some people call digital gardening and Maggie Appleton has been has a really good history of the digital gardening movement. And I think it's nice. Like mm-hmm. basically don't let good ideas go stale. Real quick before you dive in, I think the answer is going to be no because you write prolifically. But for me, that concept would like make me not want to write as much. Because like every time I write, it's just another thing to maintain for the rest of my life. Do you ever think about it like that? Well, no, like you can set expectations. So I, I have a digital garden terms of service on my site oh, okay. that says like, this is a tool for thought. This is a me thinking out loud and I don't have to return to it to update it. But, you know, I'll make it pretty clear when that piece was relevant. And if you want my updated thoughts, just hit me up. Oh, fair enough. I like that. Lower the expectations. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> well played. So you got an answer for everything. Okay, go into your the things you missed. What did you not see coming? Right. So just to recap, at the conclusion of uh, what, I, what I foresaw or what I was calling out as the trend, I said third age tools will be faster, will be ES modules first, 
would have collapsed layers. In other words, one thing doing many things well instead of many things doing one thing well. Type safer, securer from dependency attacks. Polyglot because of the, the need for, for compiled languages. And then also called out isomorphism, uh, which is server-side rendering being more of a thing. That's definitely become more true over time. So essentially what I accumulated over the past three years was just updates to that. Uh, so I have a Twitter thread where I announced the original blog post and then I just kept adding to it over time with, with relevant updates. The first thing I probably added was the change in the architecture that the venture capitalists are coming for JavaScript, mm-hmm. right? When you think about the change in how these things were done, like previously they were just kind of open source com- community volunteer efforts by individual people. And now there's organized companies that are trying to figure out a, a sustainable business model, both for, for open source and for their sort of paid products. And it's something that I think is a fundamental shift in how the industry is going to be structured because it's, it's going to seep into the tools, into our discussions of like what tool we, we choose to use it on. That's really interesting. Apart from that, the other big trend, which I called that at the end of last year, was the move towards monorepos, something I didn't really think about in the original piece. But just the fact that it's increasingly clear that monorepos are not just for the Facebooks and Googles of the world, that even small teams have a use case for them because they keep jumping between repos a lot. And it's just really our tooling that hasn't got up to the standards of being able to handle monorepos and make them easy to use, including GitHub, by the way. So projects like Turbo Repo have come up uh, in, in, uh, in the past couple of years and actually got acquired by Vercel that help you manage monorepos. But then also, also of course, uh, NX from the uh, Narwhal team has also been plugging away at this for a while. But PMPM is also very monorepo friendly. And there's just more and more tools. Like uh, just the other day, Graphite, which is a stacks of diffs tool that works really well with monorepos got announced their seed funding. So I think there's just a lot of interesting movement going on here. And I wanted to call that out as a trend. Like I think more and more JavaScript is going to move into monorepos, especially if you move full stack, which is the other trend that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So there's basically like a lot of these trends. And I I was like starting to get overwhelmed. Like I could, I could go on. I have another piece called smart clients versus smart servers. Uh, In in other words, why, why do people try to do server-side rendering and stream their updates down to the client? And then some other people have very smart clients that have a local cache of the database so they can do optimistic updates and offline first apps. And, you know, what are the trade-offs between them? Those are also trends that, you know, I'm seeing like people start to talk about at, at the edges and is, is being explored by the likes of React and AWS where, where I used to work. So essentially, like, there was no organizing framework for all of this. It, it was just like, new idea, new idea, new trend, new trend. And <laughs> I think the most useful thing that I could do for my readers is to give people a framework to sort all this into should I care about it now or not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's, yeah. And that was the main insight I had going into this talk. And so that ended up being four levels of concern, right? The first level is whatever you're currently betting on, make sure that you're, it was the right bet, right? So you continue to validate current bets. The second level is explore incrementally adoptable tools. Like look at your, your current tool chain, see if any one of them can be swapped out for something that might be better in some way, whether it's faster or simpler or more consolidated, any, anything like that. Third would be new architectures. These would require more work. Like you're not just swapping out individual tools. You might be swapping entire architectures just to take advantage of something new that might have come up, whether it's a new framework like Remix or it's a new state management paradigm like the smart clients, smart server thing. And then finally, the most out there, new languages, which is in my original blog post about the third age of JavaScript, you know, I referred to Gary Bernhardt's talk on 
the rise and death of JavaScript. And yeah, everything ends at some point. And there's there's a lot of competition for like what's going to be the next platform after JavaScript. And what is the third age of JavaScript today can be the first age of something else. And it is the first age of WASM today because WASM is only about five-ish years old. But there is other possible claims to the throne there. So, you know, if you ever wanted to re-platform and explore what's beyond JavaScript, that the fourth tier is kind of where you where you go for that. So, yeah, the, basically the, the talk is just a walk through those four tiers and I can go into each of those, but I'll just sort of pause there. Well, let's start with the VC-funded thing because from my perch, that's very interesting. I think there's implications there, but I wonder exactly what they are. I wonder how much you've thought about, okay, we have all these VC-funded JavaScript and web tooling companies, open source meets com- commerce. I'm seeing a bunch of it. It's it's hard to find a brand new open source project today that's not either started by a large corporation already who's was VC funded at some point and has made it over the hill or is like, hey, we're an open source company and we just rated the seed round or a series A, et cetera. What do you think that's going to do to the community and to the, to the space over time? I don't know, but it'll be interesting to watch. <laughs> ah, take a guess. Take some guesses. <laughs> some projects which are well-managed will be some of the best JavaScript tooling we've ever seen because they not only have the ability to support full-time maintainers and, and have a sustainable business model that doesn't rely on donations, they're also open source and, and you know serving some critical need in JavaScript. That is venture capital funding working at its best, right? Like finding a need that, that people pay for that and paying the maintainers and, and developers uh, a good amount to work on it. Where it might not work best is when developers who are mostly good at developing are being thrust a large sum of money and then told to become business people mm-hmm. with no training. And, right. <laughs> and that might be a concern. So in other words, some of these are going to fail. And that means that the projects that they promote and maintain may be rushed in some way or abandoned. And in other words, you're more suspicion of a typical open source project than you would a standard open source project because you don't know if the license is going to be changed on you. You don't know if the core product is going to be crippled by features just to put a paywall in, on some product or if they, they just run out of, of funding and then they just uh, they abandon it, which can happen to typical open source as well. So right. nothing's new there. I think just the experiment is very useful and people showing the way like Vercel and Netlify and not both now being unicorns, I think is super helpful for the newer projects in the ecosystem. But also what I'm seeing is, is really interesting, which is even the sort of backend, the database distributed systems type companies are aiming at the front-end developer and the JavaScript developer as a desired target audience, mostly because of the sheer size of this cohort, right? Like, it is the top language in the world if you discount Excel. and <laughs> Never discount Excel. It's only going to keep growing. And honestly, like, I think JavaScript developers are some of the best in the world at developer experience. And I think partially that is because we have so much choice that we have to compete on developer experience, and therefore we have very low tolerance for bad experiences as compared to other ecosystems. That's my hypothesis. I'm not actually sure that it's true. And we're primarily on the front end, right? So we're just, we're the one that you see. Yeah, anticipating user needs as well and documenting for those. I definitely feel like there is more of a documentation culture in the front end versus the back end. But in their defense, there's more of a testing culture in the back end versus the front end. Sure. It's easier there. Kind of related to like VC funding coming in, although kind of not. Something that I wanted to, to ask about was like how security might shape the rest of this age or the start of the next age. And 
supply chain attacks are, are becoming increasingly more common. And having those VC backed, we're getting paid to keep this up to date, to quickly fix vulnerabilities and to kind of have that that layer of support as you give over the keys to the kingdom to any node module that you install to run on your machine or in your production server. I guess, have you thought about the impact of security as this has become the most popular language in the world? Well, so first of all, I'm not like the most informed person on security. So probably for us would be a better person to talk to about this. I'm not optimistic or pessimistic. I'm just kind of neutral on it. I don't think it's like a focus of anyone mm-hmm. apart from Feroz, who's the founder <laughs> of Socket.dev. <laughs> yeah. And his approach is like, let's just audit everything and you know give you 10 different reports telling you that. And we have some of these automated audits as well. It's not clear like exactly how venture funding was going to affect this either way. Obviously, you're going to have mm-hmm. people who are paid better to maintain these repos, but supply chain attacks happen in perfectly well-funded companies as well. It's, it's not just like someone had someone's like acting out in open source, which has happened yeah. repeatedly, and just like you know puts a Bitcoin miner in there in a repo or something like that. I think the it really has to be fixed at the runtime level mm-hmm. or the toolchain level. So Deno has a attempt at doing this by locking down the permissions. People are realizing, unfortunately, that it's not just not that useful. You're just going to slowly enable all the flags anyway. <laughs> so it has to be mod- per module. And as far as I know, nobody's tackling that except for a company that I'm hopefully invested in that might be trying to solve that issue. But it's a kind of an open question right now. I mean, I'm, I'm not aware of any anyone else really tackling sort of per package permissioning and just reinventing the, the NPM ecosystem, you know, for better or worse, like the NPM ecosystem is what we have. And therefore the security defaults that they choose, which is none, uh, right. <laughs> we inherit that those decisions. Great for adoption though. It was great for adoption. So one of the <laughs> things that you said that made me think about a trend that I think I'm seeing, and I'm just going to bounce this out there and see if this resonates with you. We're used to seeing, you know, you think about like a startup, right? And you think about a new business, there's kind of the two headed founders, right? Like you have the the CEO and the CTO, what would become the CEO and the CTO, right? Like sales and planning and ideas. And then you have like execution and technical implementation. And it seems like CEO types, founders are often out there looking for their technical co-founder, right? Like I need a technical co-founder. I have an idea. I've got maybe some funding. I've convinced the people it's a good idea. Now I need help building it. And what I don't see quite as often, and maybe I'm just not seeing these things, is the other way around. So now we have all these VCs that are like, hey, you got an open source project or some JavaScript chops. You're a great engineer. Here's money. Go explore. Go build something. It seems like probably, and I'm more on that side of the equation, I would be more likely to say, all right, let's go. Like, let's build it. Versus I need to actually, you said that no one's actually teaching them the business side of of the equation. And it seems like a CEO type might be more aware that they need that help because it's so blatantly obvious that they can't necessarily technically build the thing than the technical person would be that they can't actually sell or position or market. Curious your thoughts on that. It's very true. I probably see that in some of the companies that we're doing today, we, we know and love today. But also don't put it past people, these you know very smart developers to grow in those domains as well. Sure. A lot of founders just learn on the job and often can't really be taught in anywhere else. There is one model which uh, I really like. It's a friend of Changelog, Sid Sabranch from GitLab. He has started a venture firm or a venture incubator called Open Core Ventures, where he takes in founders of successful open source projects and then gives and hires a CEO for them. Oh, nice. You know, and incubates a, a company with them. It's a pretty smart model. Like yeah. The maintainer gets to, gets to be a CTO and co-founder of, of the company that they 
the project that they built, but they don't have to do the company building side. And that's pretty nice, you know, if it works. It's still a pretty new model, so it's, it remains to be seen what that really looks like. But that's GitLab's entire origin story, which is <laughs> Sid was the sort of installed CEO and he self-appointed CEO. <laughs> yeah. And he, I think that's probably like a, a good model. But as far as I can tell, most of these projects, they just have the original developer founders become business people and, you know, remains to be seen how well they take to that role. Mm-hmm. And some of them succeed and some of them don't. And that's just the way it goes anyways. That's the thing about startups as well is, I mean, so many fail and now we're attaching them to open source projects or projects that, you know, there's all, there's different variations of that, that may be source available or business source, these things. And as users and as consumers in the ecosystem of NPM and et cetera, we need to be aware that like a lot of projects fail and a lot of companies fail. <laughs> and so like there's going to be, I mean, if you've been using JavaScript for a while, you know you have packages that are no longer maintained. And it's like, even though there's like, there's people who are putting capital behind these projects and like putting fuel on something to like do it right, do it fast, do it well, et cetera, doesn't mean they're not going to disappear. And so that's just part of the game as well. Yeah, yeah. Thankfully with open source, at least they'll leave their, their trail behind, right? And somebody else can pick it up and yeah. maintain it or do what they have to do, hopefully. So I think Chromatic is probably the example here with Storybook, which was abandoned projects and got picked up by the community and, and now is mostly run by Chromatic. But it doesn't happen too often. People rather build from scratch rather than, <laughs> than take over an existing code base. Unless, you know, obviously, if they, they depend on it a lot, then, then sure. But I, I just haven't heard too many examples of those. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Sourcegraph. They recently launched a new feature called Code Insights. Now you can track what really matters to you and your team in your code base. Transform your code into a queryable database to create customizable visual dashboards in seconds. Here's how engineering teams are using Code Insights. They can track migrations, adoption, and deprecation across the code base. They can detect and track versions of languages or packages. They can ensure the removal of security vulnerabilities like Log4j. You can understand code by team, track code smells and health, and visualize configurations and services. Here's what the engineering manager at Prezi has to say about this new feature. Quote, as we've grown, so has a need to better track and communicate our progress and our goals across the engineering team and the broader company. With Code Insights, our data and migration tracking is accurate across our entire code base and our engineers and our managers can shift out of manual spreadsheets and spend more time working on code, end quote. The next step is to see how other teams are using this awesome feature. Head to about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. This link will be in the show notes again, about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. So you mentioned four buckets that are important for people to be thinking about in this third age, their current bets, things that are incrementally adoptable, new architectures, and then finally new languages. We didn't get into the details on any of those. Let's maybe start with current bets or you can review again and we can dive into what that looks like. 
Yeah, mostly it's not going to be a surprise for most people, but some may really want to get on the, the, the adoption train because it's very clear what's happening. So the first one is, of course, IE11 is going away, and that is has a firm date now compared to two years ago when I struggled to find a firm date. Microsoft has now come out and said June 15, so by the time this comes out, we should be there. And to me, like the most... The most important thing that I was looking for was the U.S. government dropping IE11 support. That went from, so there's a tracker site, I think usanalytics.gov or something like that. And the proportion of IE11 traffic going to U.S. government sites, you know, across the IRS and everything else, and went from 3.6% down to so small that they don't track it anymore. It's just in other. That's really good news. Alongside that, all the sort of roadblocks that IE11 presented are also growing. And primarily, ES modules are also growing. And there's a site on Chrome that you can check for what percentage of websites loaded are using ES modules natively in the browser. So this is not just like you're using the sort of the ES module syntax, but compiled away by Webpack. This is actually you're shipping ES modules to the browser. And so I think that is up another 2x from uh, going 3x the year before. I think I worked it out to something like if it continues at the current rate, by 2026 or 2027, ES modules will be half of the web. That's a pretty big shift. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we're not saying that everything should be ES modules because even with HTTP2, there are recommendations against doing tiny modules for everything because that that causes a pretty big waterfall. But I think it's just growing in, in adoption and I think that's one of the hard data points that we can rely on. The other fact is just uh, React versus other frameworks. React is just winning. And within React, Next.js is winning hard. It's accelerating, in fact, compared to other, other frameworks. And so I think whoever's just bet on Next.js and bet on React is, has been validated tremendously. That's not to say the other frameworks are not doing well. They're just not growing as fast as React. And I think it's always useful to, to keep an eye on downloads, on the state of JS just to see what the meta is, but it hasn't really changed in the past three years. I don't expect it to in, in, in the near term. The last thing I didn't put in my notes, but I actually called out in the slides was that TypeScript almost definitely won the compiled to JS wars, if there was even a fight. Like maybe five years ago, there was more of a fight between TypeScript and Flow, but now it's pretty clear that everyone's just gone to TypeScript and there's been no corresponding growth in the other alternatives like Elm or PureScript. So yeah, that's the validation of current bets. How you feel, Nick? Feeling pretty good about your bats? Pretty good, yeah. <laughs> In your talk, though, there was one thing. I, I kind of alluded to it at the beginning of the call, or beginning of the show, and that was on one of your slides, you mentioned like a, I don't know if you called it like a regression or, or a change, but it had like TypeScript over to JS Doc. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So this is more about noting counter trend things that uh -huh. uh, might be interesting. Like now that TypeScript has won, what is the next frontier? And so I presented two paths. I actually heard some feedback from the TypeScript team that that slide might have been misunderstood. And first of all, I'm shocked that my talk reached the TypeScript team. But second of all, it wasn't meant to be that controversial. So there's two paths. One, which is build TypeScript into the language. So there's a stage one proposal right now for types as comments, mm -hmm. which just means that you can get rid of the TypeScript build step. It's unclear to me if all of the TypeScript syntax will be included. So in the attempt to formalize and standardize TypeScript, are you going to end up with like a crappy half subset of TypeScript that now people have to keep in mind. Well, so the other question is, is this the way that people want to write TypeScript? And so if your goal is to strip out the build step, maybe don't even write TypeScript. Just use JS doc types and use the language server that TypeScript comes with 
to give you the type safety, but you never actually have to write TypeScript so you don't have to use the build step. And so the most interesting projects that have gone in this way are Deno and SvelteKit, which have moved from a TypeScript code base to a JS doc type code base, specifically for these, this reason, for build speeds and I think primarily for build speeds. <laughs> yeah, I know that strategy is what JS Party panelist Chris Hiller does day to day, and he sings its praises. He really likes just doing I tried it for my site, and I was like, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. It's like the right combination of types when I need it, and then when I don't need it, it gets out of the way, and it doesn't complicate my build chain. Yeah. Nick, you're nodding against what I just said. Are you? I don't give Chris's ways any validation. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I just don't like writing comments. The TypeScript syntax feels very natural to me, whereas right. I don't know how to describe a lot of more complex things in JS doc. Right. And it seems overly verbose. Right. But that's just me. So the, the syntax can be a little ugly, that's for sure. But you can still sort of write your types in a separate file, like a TypeScript file, and import them. Oh, okay. If that's your concern. Yeah. Right. So there's ways around it. It's just a matter of like, how much are you willing to futz around with, with your tool chain if you don't have it set up? Or if your tool chain already understands TypeScript natively, then you don't, you never worry about it. Sure. Which is great. And there's the other factor in the neck is if you start doing that, will they still let you MC at TypeScript Conf, you know, and you might lose your MC spot. So that's true. You can't do that. Yeah, I know for a fact that the TypeScript team doesn't like this. The fact that people are, the JS doc typing stuff is meant to be a stepping stone to TypeScript, and now people are using it to step away from TypeScript. Backfire. That one backfired. But now the type annotations proposal is a way to step back to that. Well, yeah, so I'm just not going to pay attention to it until it reaches like stage two or three. But yeah, the concern there is that it's a subset that isn't full TypeScript and that causes problems. But who knows? Yeah, that's a valid concern for sure. And it's not meant to be like a way for TypeScript. It's meant to be a way for TypeScript, Flow, other implementations to put their type annotations in there. And it might be hard to satisfy all, all requirements of all languages in the way that they're currently formed. Oh, God. Yeah. And people want to put like JSX in, in JavaScript. And I'm like, we can't even agree on this type stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So that's validating Nick's current bets. But let's break his confidence with some of the future things. Or the, what's the second bucket of things that people are paying attention to? Things that are incrementally adoptable, is what you said earlier. Yeah. These are honestly like sometimes even easier than to pitch. Basically, like someone out there may have rewritten your favorite tool in some language that's faster, right? So this is an extension of the 30H trend that I called out, which is scripting shell systems core, like systems language core and a scripting language shell, which is JavaScript. So Webpack, you know, you might want to try, so Node, uh, you might want to try out Dino, Webpack, Vite, Babel, you might want to shift to SWC, Jest to Vtest, Prettier to Dprint, ESLint to RSLint, NVM to FNM, Dprint and RSLint. I think those are those are other linting linters as well. So a lot of these are sort of Rust rewrites of the toolchain, and they may be one for one. Or in the case of SWC, it might be a more of a platform shift. Like I think that's the vision for SWC. But either way, I think those are easy to swap with no big rearchitecture, and that's why they're a bit safer to explore. Especially because if you run them a hundred times a day, you might have significant savings. So why not? Yeah, we've seen a lot of specifically the Vite adoption and I think K-Ball recently seeing the praises of that inside of his engineering team of that just really changing their day-to-day -day work because these are things that you run 100 times a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the thing about Vite is like, it's going to be interesting whether or not when we stand here and we do this again in 2030, 
whether or not it'll be we'll be talking about Veet or SWC because Veet has the current momentum right now, but it was never really the intention of Evan, the, the author of Veet, the author of ES Build actually, both are called Evan, <laughs> to be like the core toolchain of everything. He he actually kind of called it like a proof of concept or an existence proof that your build tools can be faster. Whereas SWC is meant to be more of the platform. And so if you look at Next.js, they're not adopting V, they're adopting SWC as the sort of Rust-based platform of choice. So I think it's a very interesting debate right now. Like we may have just rushed to V just because it was the first to be a fully featured sort of bundler with a really good dev story. But long-term, we might want to, we might be shifting to SWC just because the architecture might support more things that we want to do. I don't know. This sort of Line of thinking is about two years old now, and I haven't really engaged with it either, either of the authors to check my assumptions. At the same time, like it does seem like it's getting just exponentially easier to migrate between these different things. Like, right. you know, five years ago when I had a super complex thousand line webpack config to now I have like a 20 line V config. And, right. you know, if I wanted to switch over to SWC or, or a tool chain around that, I'm not going to write a thousand lines and do it again. It's yeah. going to be pretty straightforward. So just a lot of standardization. Yeah, part of that is just standardization of all the things. And so yep. I really like that as well. That also means that some tools go away just because the stand, they no longer support the standard. So I would call out Jest in particular, which has, I, I know the Jest people and they, they're very annoyed whenever this comes up. They don't support ES modules or they don't support it well, particularly in, in Node. And they say they're, they're blocked by Node. It's not their fault, but for whatever it's worth, they get the disproportionate blame. And so everyone wanting to move to ES modules future tends to also move off Jest, yeah. <laughs> which is a, a really fast fall from grace for something that two years ago was the most loved tool in JavaScript. Yeah. I, I mean, I prototyped moving our app from Create React app to Vite, but then we also had to maintain like a separate Babel config for Jest because it doesn't work with ES modules. And Right. So Vitest is, uh, is the up and coming and probably one of the fastest growing projects of the last year to do that. Mm-hmm. So are you going to adopt Vitest, Nick, or did you do that or you just abandon the project? <laughs> when I did this prototype, it was like two weeks before they publicly announced Vitest. And so, yeah, the plan is to to look at it. And I think that it's it's very telling. Like, you know, when I looked at it back then, it was like, oh, don't use this ever or don't use this yet because it's very experimental. <laughs> and now Vite has moved over to Vitest. So it's grown a lot. They move fast in that world. Absolutely. So yeah, it's definitely something that I want to investigate further. And I think that it could be a very good fit. Let me mention two other things in the incremental adoption phase. So I, first, I, I mentioned the monorepo thing. So that mm-hmm. belongs here, the turbo repo and NX, PNPM as well. And just like, you know, the emphasis on incremental adoption of monorepos may or may not matter to you, but based on whether you're doing brownfield or greenfield. But I think the developer productivity is definitely there. And people are recognizing that whether or not you like it, like you're working across multiple repos anyway, and it's just a, a matter of your, your sort of dev workflow if you if you want to do that. Yeah. There's also the trend of browser IDEs, which are also incrementally adoptable in your sort of review workflow. So there's Stacklets, Gitpod, GitHub Codespaces, Coder.com, all these sort of solutions for you to run deploy previews in, in a web-based environment. When they give me a web-based terminal with them, I will be... Super happy. I think they do. <laughs> I think they do. I mean, you can do that with, with code spaces and things like that. But right. at what cost? So we just recently did a show with Warp, uh, founder Zach Lloyd, and Warp, their Mac OS only, so reinventing the terminal. I'm not sure if you heard that one. And they're very much looking at their next target beyond Mac OS. It's either going to be a Linux native client or a web client. 
And uh, I think putting the terminal in the browser is an interesting proposition. I know there's people that have put things that look like the terminal in the browser. And StackBlitz has put Node right in there, and there's lots you can do. But it's definitely a space that's heating up. Mm-hmm. All this VC money is just trying to put Vim in, in the browser for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, StackBlitz is even crazier. They're putting Chrome in Node in Chrome. <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Because they're, they're running Electron in the browser. <laughs> <laughs> Well-funded experiments, I'm sure. So let's move further out into the more experimental edges. Rearchitecting or new architectures, kind of like getting more aggressive here with our adoption, right? Right, right. So I actually view VC funding as a new architecture. And that's kind of like a hidden, like it's not in the code but it's behind the code yeah. because it's going to determine the evolution of the code. So that's one thing. But there's been a lot of developments over incremental rendering versus uh, static rendering. So one of my sort of clickbait headlines recently has been that there is no longer any pure static site generator in JavaScript. Both Gatsby and Eleventy, which have been sort of the pure static site generator frameworks, have not, now have serverless rendering options, like rendering on-demand options, which means they're no longer pure SSG. And I think this is just a reflection of the market. Like people are very tired of long build times. And as former employee in LFI, I can sort of attest to my own frustration with that. And so both Vercel and LFI are trying to drive different perspectives on how to do incremental rendering right. Netlify's approach is they call DPR, uh, distributed persistent rendering, and then Vercel's approach is ISR, incremental static uh, regeneration. And there's pros and cons to that. I would actually point to Lydia Halley's talk at uh, Reactathon as the current best state of the art on the five or six different options that you can choose and the trade-offs between them. So there's a lot of acronyms here, and probably you don't really want to get too much into those. But I think it's, it's worth understanding the options available to you because they are significant shifts. Like I have shifted my own blog over from fully statically generated approach to a rendered on-demand approach. And I mean, it makes sense. My deploys are really quick. So, <laughs> nice. I mean, this is going to surprise none of the gray beards out there <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> because who are like, yeah, we had this FW here. I mean, what are you talking about? But no, I mean, I, I think the innovation, I mean, the shifts here are, are just that people are trying to use JavaScript more sensibly and more sparingly. And so probably one of the more interesting approaches are, is Astro, which is still a static site generator, but like, you know, has a, is very friendly with the frameworks rather than being sort of anti-framework or siloing off the framework into a, a separate folder. So I tend to call them bootloaders. The other framework that's sort of in this capacity is Quick as well, QuickJS from Mishko Hevery. So both of them, the premise is islands architecture. Like the, you only download the, the parts of JavaScript that you are specifically going to hydrate for and everything else is just static HTML. Uh, and, and to that view, Mishko actually put out a, a recent blog post that got a lot of attention called Hydration is Pure Overhead. In other words, you should not download any JavaScript related to rendering HTML that you actually never change, which is the default way that SSR is for most React apps. And people don't know this because it's a very nuanced view, uh, <laughs> but, it's, but it's true. Like if you want to get to the, the minimal shift to JavaScript, this is the kind of thing that you have to do. The last I'll cover here about this approach is React server components, which is not fully out yet, but both Remix and Next.js are working on approaches to ship this such that it's essentially you are able to re- render React components in the cloud and stream them down in a serialized format to the client side where they can render them out again. And 
that will fundamentally cut. I think when they tested it at Facebook, it cut their bundle sizes by like 30 to 40%. It was pretty huge. So being able to seamlessly choose whether or not you're rendering on the client versus the server and to move between those things flexibly is kind of the, the theme of what I'm calling neo-isomorphism. Woo. Word salad today. Lots of uh, neo-isomorphism. <laughs> Ryan Florence also had a really good talk at Reactathon, calling it a lever. Like essentially, there are trade-offs to all of these approaches, right? Like sometimes you want the fast layout, sometimes you want the instant response. And so not needing to like move a bunch of files around or to adopt a totally different tool chain just to achieve different parts of that rendering effect, that's kind of the goal of Remix. And I think that's kind of the goal of a lot of these tools, which is like to try to make it easy to move code around to achieve the dynamic parts that you want to achieve and the static parts that you want to achieve. That's a lot. We're getting short on time quickly. Hit us up with reskilling, new languages. You mentioned WASM before. Yeah. The death of JavaScript. Tie us up into a bow here. This is the speculative part in the sense of like, I don't know what I'm talking about because I haven't built a WASM <laughs> project yet. I just kind of try to keep up to date on like what's going on. The thesis is, and this is actually... I highly encourage everyone to check out Gary Barnhart's talk on the rise and on the birth and death of JavaScript because he actually predicted WASM before WASM. He called it a different thing. I think he called it metal. But essentially, most people may not have heard that WebAssembly is not just like a buzzword or a trend. Like it's actually a formalized fourth language of the web. Like as the W3 committee has sort of put in this press release, the first three languages are HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, and the fourth will be WebAssembly. Like, in other words, it's going to be supported for an extremely long time, essentially as long as the World Wide Web exists, WebAssembly will be supported. But it's only five years old. In other words, while we're in the third age of JavaScript, WebAssembly is in its first age, which means it's still forming its spec. It's still, people are still figuring out what they, what they can do with it. There's no ecosystem built up around it. There's just a lot to get to to where JavaScript is today. But I think people are already exploring what is possible. Uh, you know, everyone talks about Figma, but there's a really good InfoWorld article on the rise of WebAssembly that is actually talking about the non-famous examples. So Disney streaming uses WebAssembly as a sort of cross-platform solution. There's a lot more in there. Uh, I just picked Disney because everyone has a Disney subscription, especially if you have kids. Uh <laughs> also, it's just not a place where you would expect it. It's kind of an unexpected use, right? Right, right, exactly. But basically, like anyone with like, very high cross-platform needs or very high performance needs, particularly if they have a lot of code that's written not in JavaScript, but they just want to port it over. The Bloomberg Terminal has uh, is using WebAssembly. The BBC iPlayer, the one that plays on, the, on every BBC page, uses WebAssembly. Amazon Streaming or Amazon Prime Video also uses WebAssembly. Like there's just a lot of like lesser known examples that are not Figma that are it's starting to explore this space and the regular web developer, because they, we don't have the same problems that these people do, we're just completely unaware of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's pretty interesting. So for the record, I don't think WebAssembly will kill JavaScript. I think it would just be, it will make the web much more accessible for everyone else who doesn't write JavaScript. That's one thing. And it will, it will make JavaScript be able to access non-JavaScript capabilities, like stuff that was written in C++ libraries and mm-hmm. other languages that might be compiled to, to WebAssembly. And then finally, I think that the emerging consensus actually is that while WebAssembly was kind of invented for the browser, it might be more useful in the server because of the security model and the, the sandboxing. Like it actually might be a new format that, that arises. So Ryan Dahl from Node and, and now Deno actually wrote a blog post, I think like last week, uh, calling it JavaScript containers. 
And if that arises, then I'll be extremely happy because it might kill Docker. <laughs> and that means it's just faster and more secure and hopefully more stable. So I'm really looking forward to that application of WebAssembly on the server side. Yeah, what a fascinating turn of events that would be if all of a sudden WebAssembly became the, do- the, the new Docker of our server side things. Just didn't see that one coming, you know? Turns out yeah. maybe that's the case. That's cool. One more point on WebAssembly before we move on is you say you don't think it's going to kill JavaScript. I think I'm with you on that. I think JavaScript developers are more concerned about, well, is it going to water down the demand for JS devs if we can put C++ devs or Go devs or all these people not having to learn JavaScript? It's not going to kill the language, but is it going to maybe kill some of the demand, which we're currently enjoying right now if you're a good JavaScript engineer, you're probably gainfully employed and in demand. Do you think that that's a possibility of just reducing demand? I don't think so, but this is where the future can often surprise us. Yeah. I primarily don't think so just because JavaScript is by itself easier to learn anyway. So like if you're going to, like JavaScript already has a huge head start, it's going to continue, like there's no reason for it to lose that head start. Plus if I'm like a really awesome C++ developer, I'm probably gainfully employed <laughs> doing some cool C++ stuff, right? Exactly. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> But still, you know, I, I do keep an eye out. So .NET developers have Blazor, which actually uses WebAssembly under the hood for, for you to write .NET on the client. Dart developers have Flutter, which every time I bring this up, like the React Native people get really pissed off and the web accessibility people get really pissed off because Flutter web is not particularly accessible. They rend- render onto a canvas. But at the same time, like there's a generational shift happening with Flutter where you can really tell like the younger developers are really taking to it quite well because they just don't have the same biases that we have in JavaScript. So that could be a, a thing. The Rails developers are hanging in there with Hotwire. The Phoenix developers have LiveView. You know, there's all these sort of ways to write to the web if you don't want to use JavaScript. And all of them have a decent claim at like, yeah, like if you, why should you be forced to learn JavaScript? Like this is a perfectly viable framework where you can write interactive applications and what else do you need? Good question. <laughs> Nick, any final thoughts or questions for Swix before we let him go? No, I think that it's this is just a fascinating way to look at the past, present, and future of the language, the platform, the ecosystem, and I'm really excited to see where it goes from here, to see if it really does die in 2035, too. Right. Well, it'll definitely die at the heat death of the universe, so, I mean... <laughs> maybe, maybe. We don't know, maybe JavaScript is quantum and it just exists beyond <laughs> reality. <laughs> you set some infinite loops and you're good. Yeah. There you go. Can't stop, won't stop. All right, Swix, where's the best place for people to connect with you on the interwebs? You could probably find me on Twitter at Swix or on my blog at Swix.io. Awesome. Well, it's always a pleasure having you on. Uh, we'll have, definitely have you back maybe when the fourth age starts. Oh, we'll have you back before then. But for this topic, you know, <laughs> maybe when the fourth age starts or when the death happens, we'll have you back on to tell the whole tale. So thank you for listening. All the links to all the things I've been furiously jotting down. We've got Lydia Halley's talk. We've got, of course, Swix's writings, uh, Gary Bernhardt's Birth and Death of JavaScript. We've got that InfoWorld article, the JavaScript containers article. So all the things are in your show notes for further reading. We appreciate you listening. For Nick Nisi, I'm Jared Santo, and this has been JS Party. We'll talk to you all next week. If 
you're picking up what Swix is putting down, listen to The Changelog, episode 467, where he joined Adam and myself to discuss his path to becoming a developer, what it means to learn in public, and how he's been able to leverage that process to not only level up his skills and knowledge, but also to rapidly advance his career. Here's just one of the many awesome things you'll take away from that episode. So the analogy is, if you're above the API, you tell machines what to do. If you're below the API, machines tell you what to do. So here's the developer analogy, which is there's another division in society, which is the Kanban board. If you're below the Kanban board, the Kanban board tells you what to do. <laughs> if you're above it, you tell, the, you, you, you tell developers what to do. So how do you break out of that class division? I'll leave it up to you, but just keep in mind, there's always layers. Love that. I love the discussion around it, but uh, I'm also thinking... Continue listening and subscribe at changelog.fm slash 467. Special thanks to Fastly for CDNing for us, to Breakmaster Cylinder for these fresh beats, and to you for listening. We appreciate you. Next up on the pod, Nick and Chris take up a listener request by discussing best practices around logging and error handling in JavaScript. But they don't go at it alone. Our friends at Socket Security are back and they have strong opinions on these subjects. It's a fun conversation. So fun, in fact, that YouTube took our live stream down for violating their community guidelines. We have no idea why. We'll have that episode ready for you next week. The other thing I like about ES Build is that it's a static Go binary, so I feel more confident that I'll be able to get it to work in the future than with tool written in JavaScript, just because I understand the JavaScript ecosystem.